You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more. Welcome to episode 30 of the Hoops Fix podcast with me, your host Sam Nita, full-time British basketball advocate. And for episode 30, we managed to go and get John Atkinson, a.k.a. Statkinson, the man who can, um, pretty much single-handedly been fighting the good fight to help the federations do a better job of documenting British basketball history and stats. Um, you might have seen uh, over the years, any time, pretty much anyone within British basketball, any media outlet, uh, refers to a player being capped X amount of times or a GB record or any sort of historical figure like that. Um, you can pretty much guarantee that it's come from John and his records. Uh, and he is over the last, oh, I don't even know how many decades, uh, just pretty much been fighting that cause, um, campaigning to get the federations to do a better job of collecting history, documenting his- history, publicising history, um, because without it, no one has the context. Uh, and in my opinion, um, without it, it, it makes it very hard to create any type of basketball culture. So kind of his, his life's work actually uh, was put into uh, Worcester University at the end of last year. Uh, they launched the, Na- the National Basketball Heritage Archive and Study Centre, um, which is a sort of the, well, pretty much the only collection archive of British basketball history in the UK. And the idea is that hopefully moving forward, that students and researchers will be able to use it to and build upon their work uh, moving forward. So I think John's work is is massively important. Um, and not only that, he's obviously been around the game and seen years and years and years of it. So has many, many stories. The guy can talk. Uh, he's well aware of that, and so am I. Um, so we jumped on a call. He actually lives in Spain. So I'll tell you now, the connection at his end was not very good. Uh, so listening back to the recording, there are parts where it's just a little bit muffled. The call did drop uh, once or twice. Uh, so I've, I've spliced it together in this interview. But you can still make it out. So if you just stick with it, um, you should be able to hear. Hopefully it's still clear enough. If it's not, let me know. Um, it'd be good to get a bit of feedback, but I think it's, it's passable, but it's definitely not as good as some of the other recordings that we've had. Um, so anyway, that's enough from me. Uh, I will leave you with this conversation. Uh, as always, do get in touch. Uh, let me know what you think. Uh, if you have a quick moment, if you can get onto iTunes and drop us a rating, a review, it'd be much appreciated. It does help the podcast grow and spread far and wide, which, of course, uh, is one of the things we want to do because we want to help spread the word of British basketball. Um, so yeah, if you could do that, it'd be much appreciated. But yeah, here's the conversation uh, with me and John Atkinson. Okay, we're honoured to be here with John Atkinson, otherwise known as Statkinson. Uh, John, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sam. So for people that uh, don't know who you are, I'm sure that most people in British basketball have actually been exposed to your work without necessarily knowing that they've been exposed to your work. So can you... Uh, Just start with a little intro to yourself. Um, Tell us who you are and and what you do. Okay. Um, I'm a humble guy who spent his early years in Bedfordshire. And I went to college in the West Midlands. After going on a Loughborough summer school um, with tutored by Peter Shaw and Peter Ray, um, I later picked up the reins of my college basketball club and help them have a, a, a season in the first division of the West Midlands League. Um, by doing that, I met with a gentleman called John H. Pitts um, from, from Solihull, and I worked with him later in the West Bromwich College of Commerce and Technology, as it was then called. Um, Lenny Henry is a famous student of that establishment, student. and um, between um, the experiences of Peter Ray, Peter Shaw, and um, John Pitt. I was introduced to statistics. I um, saw all different aspects. And as I wasn't a player, um, or a very humble and poor player, um, I, in, once I left college, was going to games and practicing the statistics. Um, I got rescued by Sutton Crystal Palace um, when a minibus that I was uh, with broke down and I made a link to to, uh, to join them for the start of the 73-74 season of the then National League um, 
That league started the year before with with six clubs. My background basically starts around 1970 with, with, with basketball. And before that, I have done an enormous amount of research, reading, to um, understand those eras of the 60s and the 50s and the 40s and a little bit of the um, of 30s. So I linked on with, with Crystal Palace, 73-74, and one of our first early, early season games um, was at Upper Hayford, and that was the first game that uh, Jimmy Guyman played um, when he answered a call from Tom Wisman, um, our then coach, very highly successful coach of the 70s, early 80s in, in, uh, in England and, and UK. Um, part of what I'm doing now is a legacy to, to Jimmy and all the other players of his era. Um, and that's why I'm proud to be wearing his mother's um, T-shirt. Um, they're so sadly not with us. Um, Jimmy, always a total, total inspiration and a, the ultimate perfectionist in uh, what he did as a, as a player and, and, and a coach. Um, so I started, as I, as I said, this 73-74. One reason I linked with Crystal Palace is because they had European aspirations. And I spent nine years with them, um, winning 15 British titles and one or two others. Um, I won't bore you with all, this, with, with all the details. Um, that area was monumental. Um, the club was so progressive. Um, but there was good um, good opposition around at that time. Morris Wordsworth with his Doncaster Panthers club, Bob Hope and his team um, with the old um, groundwork, later Team Fiat and Coventry before they moved on, on to Birmingham, and Peter Sproggis with LSK, London Latvians, which became MC All-Stars. Um, great people highly motivated and several of them were, as I want to and later, thinking, people who think outside the box. Um, I left Crystal Palace in 1982 uh, when Channel 4 started. Part of that was initiated through the good work of Big Struggles. Anyway, I worked with Miles Aitken, um, Simon Reid on those programmes for Cheerleader Production and my initial link with Miles Aiken, who was an ex-Real Madrid player, uh, was with the 75-76 GB um, Pre-Olympic team and I, I was a part of that at a very, very young age in my mid-twenties. So I was extremely fortunate got travelling to Europe and doing things in my twenties my that my peers had uh, hardly any peers like me of mine would have had that uh, op op opportunity. Um, so I did all the Channel 4 stuff before that, that closed and, uh, and had a brief three year, two and a half years with, with Hamill Hempstead, my more local club. Because basically when I joined Crystal Palace, um, they, they were initially playing in North London. But unbeknown to me, they moved to South London. So a home game was five and a half hours round trip in a car. The next year, and I'd moved up to the, to the Midlands to work, back with, with, with John Pitts, um, they moved down to Crawley. So my home games were from sunny Walsall down to Crawley every, well, every other weekend. And the away game, I would go up to Manchester because Manchester to scout scout the other club and it was half the distance of a home game for me. So how does that sound at the moment, Sam? Yeah, I mean, uh, so I'm just trying to wrap it up to keep it um, succinct for people. Like, essentially, 
uh, you've you've been a statistician and you're kind of and you've now transitioned into more of a, a more of a historian and making sure that all of these uh, facts and stats and everything else are brought to the wider public. Would you say that's a, a kind of fair description? Yeah, I mean, in the beginning, um, having done those courses, I evolved my own system um, because in in the early days we actually worked for, for our club home and away. Um, which was very interesting for, tra uh, for traveling on occasions. So, working, um, working from there, um, I then moved from the club scene, I moved on to, to the TV soon. And when I started with TV, of course, I researched um, whole loads of bundles of stuff in international events, etc. That, that's why I'm heavily involved with the history of, of England, GB, etc. I worked on the team and um, I checked and researched all of the history, men and, and women, going back to years off. 63 for the women, 1938 for the men, for England, GB back to, back to 48. Um, and then, um, having not had a club, I was linking with back with Roger Yap in the early 90s and as I've said to several people it was, without Roger the sport would be totally lost. Um, Roger was an absolute star picking up um, a lot of the historical stuff that I didn't cover in the mid 80s. Um, he was doing the day-to-day -day league grind and his work ethic was well beyond most professionals with with due respect, that is an honest materiality. And um, so, so from the mid 90s, uh, Roger and I worked together for about 15 years. And uh, between us, like with everything else I did, I've always been working with other people in, in the background. Everything I do is leaning in and supporting, using my skills. Um, complementing the skills of another person, like Roger, like one of my ex-people's Dave Rogerson, who did a brilliant job in the early hand notational stuff in helping me get my sheets drawn up to a professional standard. Um, so the sport owes a lot um, to Dave. Um, and um, following on from there, um, seven, seven, eight years with um, Sky Sports, with ITV Sport before its demise, and then in 2004-05 I moved out to Spain where I've been for the last 12-13 years, so I created a library in two places, in, my, in, in our family home where my mother was living and, and here. Hasn't been easy, um, I'm now moving the last 20 or so boxes to, uh, to Worcester. Um, to our archive centre, which we'll come across, talk about later. Um, so I must sincerely thank my mother, um, who allowed a monstrous amount of boxes and paper to stay in her in her house. Um, without that, a big half of the of the Worcester project would would not be there. Um, so um, thanks, Mum. Uh, so, so of all, all the things that, uh, that you could be involved with and dedicate your time to, um, the history of British basketball is obviously quite a, a random one. You know, why do you do it? What is it about it that, um, that interests you, that, that makes you want to do it? Um, I was reminiscing this morning, um, wondering what was coming up from you. And um, I was thinking back to my school days when I actually kept, the results of all our school sports teams for our for our PE teacher, and most people wouldn't be surprised. And I also cut my teeth as a cricket scorer. And I used to do the batting shots that you now see in a digital form on on TV. That stuff came. I've got a Peter May book of cricket, and those charts were in the 50s. Um, so there's nothing new in those. It's just a case of updating um, and in, improving. Um, so, 
when I haven't gone on those courses, I set up my, my system, some of which is actually um, you can buy from BE, and not many people there would know where, where it came from. But it came from me, a lot of it. Um, so those paper systems continued and were used with different versions for, for TV. Um, it was only in 97 when Roger Yap brought Cyber Sports across uh, from the States and um, that was used um, from, from that date on for all major, major events until new systems had come, come in. But um, the lead clubs took another 10 years to all come on board and that's been a, not the best way to progress uh, that sport. I, uh, I humbly think. So, um, because um, with the TV, Dave Rogerson and uh, Matt Poulter, who was another star of the keyboard for, for Sky, um, I didn't need to be, to be a keyboard operator. I was always a spotter or uh, following on from my previous um, annotation skills, where my systems were, I like to think, pretty good, pretty well researched. Um, and it's now 32 years since I wrote a paper for the British Coaches Organisation for Mark Dunning, another lifer, the man who created the word lifer, um, which I'm humbly honoured to be uh, one of those disciples. Um, and I wrote this article about my system, a copy of an analysis of, of Germany, West Germany against sorry, uh, the Soviet Union, again, the old Czechoslovakia, and I mentioned about how we needed a, a, a one definition system for the whole of Europe. So I'd like to think I was a little bit ahead of my time there, in it, and a lot of head fashion before that got done 15 plus more years later. But, but um, thankfully, it, it, it's, now in, it's now in place. Although, to be honest, I'm now glad to be um, uh, working under the term of a historical statistician. I don't like some of the present definitions, to be, to be perfectly honest. And I now move aside um, from, from hands-on of recording the game, because that, that's the appropriate thing to do. I'm a pensioner, and a couple of years more. And, Better to have young, active, um, smart young people or younger um, doing these jobs now. So, at the moment, uh, do you work in like a freelance capacity? Like, obviously, you've been to however many Eurobaskets over the years. I see you at pretty much all of the um, GB games uh, that happen up and down the country. Like, how how does that work in, in terms of an arrangement? Do the federations contact you and say, "Yeah, we want you at the games. We're going to pay you to." to help document this stuff, or is it something that is a labour of love that you're doing off your own back? Um, mixed agenda there. Um, as far as GB goes, um, because of the work I did 75, 76, I had a complete hand notational system for all the games I was at. Um, and going forward, I updated those records and researched back to 48, for, for others. So when 2005 arrived in the Olympics and then the 2006 program began, I'd basically been one of, if, apart from a Steph Collins and Nate Brighting, um, who, who sadly just had to leave the system, uh, can I briefly pay tribute to Nate here? Because this guy played 81 out of the first 87 GB games in 2006 and then did 48 as assistant coach. 29 out of 135 games, pretty good shift. They, um, hands on, great guy, great, great contribution, um, similar to what Steph is continuing. Um, okay, so, uh, so with the. Yeah, with I, I, I apologize, Sam. Um, just, just to. To finish your finish your question, um, I was commissioned 
by Bill McKinney to set up some of the history of GB, which I did. And Bill's just been a great, a great person to know over the last 40 plus years because he was the captain of the GB team that I worked with. So people like Bill commissioned me work and Roger and I worked on um, the GB games, um, game by game. Reese Williams from Wales, who's an absolute excellent star who I worked with in the Olympics. Um, he plays now another round. He helped with the women. And then Roger, car- Roger and I carried it on from 2009 up to the Olympics. And um, I carried on after the Olympics, basically as wearing um, as the third man of the team before these new qualifications came in. And it was the appropriate time to step aside and just being that historical capacity. So I have some um, um, some contracts, um, but um, I can't honestly say that I'm I can live on this money. I'm basically barely breaking even, um, but I did do some big, bigger stuff for for England um, for a couple of sources. The last being Mark Clark. And um, there's a lot of very good stuff ready for England to take on board to the Commonwealth Games. And I hope that someone will speak to me because the previous Commonwealth Games, um, we weren't too well documented for our profiles, etc. Whereas they can have the kitchen sink as long as they are. Um, and we sort, sort something out. And it's so important. Um, so, for the players to have um, correct and up-to-date profiles and records of their, of their history up-to-date. Why, why do you think the, documenta- the documenting of the history is so important? Like, What role do you think it has to play in, in, uh, in British basketball as a, as a wider entity? Um, I really sent this paper to you the other day and to other people which I wrote in 2014. And basically, British basketball in some areas is, is third world in some of these areas because we haven't got the digital systems in place from the beginning. So we've had to play catch up, catch up, catch up. Um, the Basketball League with Andy Webb have done a tremendous job trying to get themselves up to date but they didn't have it at the beginning. Now they're doing some excellent stuff. Um, with GB, we had the problem in the beginning of people trying to wipe out the early 48 to 92 history. And so, please, Kevin Cadle, Coach England, Scotland and GB. Bob Mackay, one dear, dear lost friend, played for Scotland. England and, and GB. Bill McKinney's was an all-time star for, for, for GB. Um, Kenny Johnston from Scotland was a player, coach, team manager for, for GB. And along with all these other players, over a hundred of them, people were trying to tell me and all those people that, that all these games, all these players, it didn't happen. So Alton Bird didn't play for GB as well. Alton Bird is the prime example of what part of what I'm trying to do, because I've documented all besides the international stuff. I've documented um, the league, the league stuff on creating honours board back to 1960 for the men, 1965 for the women, and Alton is two-time MVP in the BBL and was two times before that um, with the old EB um, structures which ran for 15 years. Plus he's got a chunk of stuff in, in Scotland. So again, are you telling me that the first part of, part of his career, Alan Cunningham's career and, and other really, really talented players um, didn't exist? Um, while I'm drawing breath, uh, I will be continuing this effort to get this stuff in place and thankfully we do have some positive people listening and and responding. 
So, so you know what you're referring to there is kind of since um, when GB, when the program was re reborn in 2006, there was a, you know a lot of the communications that kind of went out were saying that it's the first time that this has happened or it's the first time a player scored this many points or whatever. But actually, what they were really meaning was that it's the first time that anyone's done it in the newer new era since 2006 without taking into consideration all of the years gone in in previous years. Is that, is that what you're saying? Exactly. Um. Okay. And then, so now, uh, because now I see that GB in their releases and the information they put out, they seem to be a little more careful in terms of wording it. They, they kind of regularly refer it to as the, as the new era. Um, do you feel like they're doing a better job now uh, in terms of recognising the past? Um, yes, um, in, in the sense of those, that word in the era. Um, but it's so difficult for them because um, since the revamp in 2006, when I was saying about Nat, Steph and myself, and sadly we lost the there's hardly anybody who's been around totally for the 12, 12 years. Um, and the media aspect has changed and changed and changed. So I'm communicating with one person, within two years I'm talking to another. If they're new and out of the sport, I'm having to educate them um, and convince them that, that I do know something and I'm legit um, to work with. Um, which is really tedious and totally time-wasting um, because I don't have enough time in my life and my humble opinion. I've set a life expectancy for myself and I want, I want to get this stuff wrapped up sooner rather than later. Um, and everybody coming in, I mean this summer I worked with three different people um, doing the uh, Eurobasket 100 day countdown. Well, sorry, I, I say two and I ended up working with, with the third for the, for the Eurobasket. And that's not their that's not their fault. Um, sport ha sport has to stabilise the, 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 the staffing. Uh, we need continuity, and that's happened with BE, etc. So, <coughs> excuse me. In terms of um, going back to something I was talking to you about earlier, like you know, I I, uh, I believe that the having a documented history of the game is important because it's one of the things that essentially uh, helps create a culture around it. And it's one of the things that British basketball um, has, has so sorely missed um, since I've been around covering anyway. I feel like there isn't really an identity. People don't know um, people don't know that the, the state of the game in the past and kind of the things that have happened and the things that players have done. From, from your standpoint, like what, like why should someone care? Like someone listening to this, why should they care that... Uh, that all this information is out there publicly so people can look up the history of the game? Like, what difference um, do you think it can make? Like, why should people care about it? It's, well, as you're saying, the sport lives off, off legends and, and role models. And to create them, you need the information to, to substantiate that they really are legends. Okay, 20-odd years ago, by Ed Percival, Roger and I set up legends for men and women, we've put up some criteria across seven to nine statistical um, elements and, and, and we did that and then we had, had to put it, put it on the shelf. Um, but whenever there's a TV event for basketball, sorry, for rugby, soccer and cricket, can you imagine the commentators not having the caps of the players, not having the debuts of the player, not having any of the back basic most important um, in information and what is really sad is that okay, cricket um, has this ongoing statistical element but basketball has had statistics for 40 well 50 50 plus years I have paper copies from the Alliance Bureau uh, from the NBA in the early 70s and their stuff goes back to their year dot goes back to to the early 50s. Um, but we've had it here. But there's no, we're one of the few, I mean, living in Spain, uh, I didn't mention that earlier, um, I read my local, my sport, one of my sports papers every day, and all across Europe, you've got stats boxes. And 
we haven't had that culture um, in, in the UK, but we've had the information in our systems. One year with a magazine, there was a massive thing to get that done into a magazine on a weekly basis. But we haven't made it part of our of, of our culture, though we've had the information. And I, I just, well, weak isn't the appropriate word. Um, but when I, we now have all this soccer jargon coming out with pressing, assists from all the soccer funding. And it's as if they, invent, they invented it all. You know, well, come on, basketball was decayed before them. And it's great they're doing it now because that, it, it, um, the soccer public is now more, more educated, um, etc. So, does that yeah. answer that? Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. So in the, in the paper that you sent me the other day that you wrote in 2014, uh, you essentially... Uh, arguing for uh, the digitization of, of your collection and and the the, st the statistics and, and game information sort of moving forward in, in an ideal world if you were in charge of uh, if you were hired by the federation right now on a big fat salary and uh, you were told that you need to um, do a better job of helping British basketball um, create their archive and uh, record this information like ideally what would you what do you want to see happen um, what steps do you think the federation uh, needs to take to help um, document this history and create this this culture around the sport I mean, well thanks for asking that question sadly I don't have the IT skills to do that that's where again as I've mentioned before I'm working with people I'm not a one-man show Everything I do is linked with other people. But, okay, what I'm trying to do at the moment, linked with the Archive Centre at the University of Worcester, is what's been bad is that lots of stuff has been thrown away. Every time people move offices, stuff has been dipped. Not just in the UK, in Europe. I've been to maybe nine, ten headquarters for, for GB England and the BBL over, over the years. And every time they move, stuff goes. So it's what I'm alluding to with the digital stuff is that at the moment for EB they've got a lot to sort out um, as far as the cost stuff. And I've created I've created um, I've created and with a couple of gaps still to, to get to nod on, a complete honours board from year dot as I know it of of clubs. Um, with all the all the title winners, title winners for both men and women. Um, below the line with that, um, I've got um, stats boxes. Um, I've created something with that um, has obviously the clubs, and then the players, the coaches, and the referees. So we can have honours boards for for all of all of this. But what I want is is a link between the club system and the international stuff because when the BBL wants international stuff I'll get a flick from a call from, from Andy Webb or one of the staff and I will deliver them what, what I can. I'm hoping that Worcester can play in some part in helping to link some of this so that we have some, cent some more centralised link because the big problem is all the time stuff is being ditched. Um, or not kept when staff staff leave. So we we need to take control of that because we haven't done that 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 so far. So I'm not the man to do. I mean, I was just asked yesterday about creating the first stages for part of GB, um, which I'll be looking over the next. next. Yeah, sorry, we had a few connection issues there. Um, so yeah, carry on as you were saying uh, about the yeah. Sorry. Um, with respect to everybody, um, we're not going to progress the sport unless we have our legends, unless young people grow up and know the names of the clubs, um, the players, the coaches and everything. They're household names. Um, football's started to do that in the last five years with their, with their women, they've put money into it and they've supported it. We've just got to, to get these systems in, in place. Um, we have to make some budget for it. We have to do it. Otherwise, 
Um, I, I was sadly saying from above, um, I did my best, you didn't listen, um, and this is where you are. But that does not need to happen. We have an awful lot of good information to create a reasonable basis to create appropriate legends with correct information for the wonderful things they've done over the years for our, for our school. Yeah, one thing I, I've thought for a while is that I would love to see... Um like a, a you know a, like basketballreference.com like a sort of online database like that where I could go onto it search any year any player any team um, and have everything in there stats uh, game results um, profiles and I, I feel I feel like that's possible you know I guess it just requires someone to put in the time and the budgets in terms of in terms of funding for stuff like this um, you know, I know you've previously with Worcester have looked into into public pots of, of funding and grants and stuff. Um, how much stuff out there is available to potentially fund a sort of digitisation of the history of British basketball like that? Um, I can't say too much um, from the Worcester angle, i.e. the National Archive Centre, in the, in the sense that um, we basically have a team of five working around this project at this moment. Um, Jenny Collins, who's had a massive um, input and awareness of women's basketball in, in, in the UK, um, linking with me um, to create this with, with Worcester. Um, Mick Donovan with Roger Fairman and Jeff Pell. Um, between, between those three at Worcester, they have to control um, some of these uh, points that you just made. And I'm hoping that. Um, their expertise, their enthusiasm, will connect with the other the other bodies, um, the associations, um, the two. Well, with England, possibly Scotland, in, in some ways, um, with the BBL and obviously obviously GB. Um, I respect the fact that that they have to control and own some of their some of their data. But we need some central link because, on some areas, this stuff is is being lost. I'm doing I've been doing some stuff recently, and I don't know if the people I sent it to what they've done with it. The work has been done. I've been paid, um, and this is this is really important. So I'm not rocking the boat. I'm not being negative. I'm I'm here trying to give basketball my broad shoulders, but. You know, I'm an aging person, and, and I'm flagging this up. I'm not being dramatic. I'm hopefully being honest and totally realistic to achieve this, because um, we lost um, some good media people in, in in recent years. And Roger, up at the moment, um, we still need um, some things from him. He has um, irreplaceable information, um, and we need to save this. We need to get it, and we, we need to get it digitised in, in an appropriate form. And this is where we probably need to be speaking to the likes of yourself or one or two of your your peers to set this up in a, an appropriate way, so that uh, we can deliver this pathway to legends and and the great tradition for the sport. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I think that. Uh... It's only really since I've been involved with the, in the media side of things just how frustrating it is when you're trying to have give context to anything and you just can't find the information about it out there. And, uh, I mean, you know how many times I've sent you emails when we're trying to write a story and just need information, whether it's a, uh, about a, um, the number of caps that a player has or um, a scoring record or whatever it might be. Um, and I agree, it's, it's so important that we get it out there publicly. And, you know, on the, on the, you know, the, 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 the on, in line with that, is that the more publicly available information like this is and the easier it's made for potential media outlets or people that are interested in the sport to create more content around it, it helps build uh, you know, more media coverage um, and a bigger sort of market for it at the moment. I think at the moment, you know, I say to people all the time, like, there are loads of people that I see that you know, want to set up a British basketball website or help cover the game. Um, but I think when they start, they realise that it's not like... It's ironic because in, in the UK, it's actually easier... To cover the NBA than it is to cover British basketball because with the NBA all the information is there historically uh, present day well with British basketball 
it's not a case of if you're trying to do a, a, a feature on someone, you can't just Google and find all the information. The only way is to make phone calls, is to speak to people, is to, is to reach out to the broader network. Um, and it's why I, you know, I really think that it's, it is so important. Anyway, I digress. So in terms of, um, we've, we've referred to Worcester a little bit uh, in this conversation and some people... Can I, just stop, can I just stop you for a moment? Because um, what you just said in the first thing, context. Context is the key, key, key word to everything, and especially to what I do, because everything I do, statistically, I ha has to be in a context. It's it's so so important. So I don't want to be rudely intruding here now. I just want to reinforce what you've said, because so many the people who throw information out that's not in context, um, I always. Um, tend to dismiss because there has to be the context and you know you you've summed it up perfectly yeah completely i think you know even if you're talking about an education standpoint when you're uh, talking about people that haven't been exposed to the game uh you know they don't know if they don't know that the the average score uh, points per game average in a league is 15 points a game they don't realize that 30 point game is good for example it's just things like that that um yeah, it's just it's an education piece, it's a cultural piece, uh, it's a media piece. There's um there's so many things that it can it can feed into. Uh, so yeah, I wanted to talk about Worcester a little bit because we've referred to it uh, last year in October time, end of last year. Uh, obviously, okay. I, I came to Worcester and the National Heritage Archive and Study Centre uh, was open. That's sort of the first space of its kind, which is kind of uh, aiming to. Well, you tell me about it. Tell me about uh, what it is and and uh, how it came about. Well, for several years, I was trying to look for an outlet um, to do what we've been talking about over the last few, few minutes, um, and everything eventually came to a head. I've been working for about the last four or five years um, with Jenny Collins, trying to put a strategic um, find a strategic pathway. Jenny being the strategic person um, in uh, what we were doing, and. In two years ago, my mother um, sadly had we had to sell the family home, so my first stack of boxes needed to go somewhere. I moved that library um, four times across the country. It's stored been stored in all different places. Um, that's why I sincerely thank my mother. So that that stuff had to go. So Mick uh, Mick Donovan answered the call nice big band came and 48 boxes of, of their stuff came, went to them, other stuff went later. By the time I finish my other stuff here, there'll be about 100 boxes from me. And then we've got other very good people um, that, are, that, that have and will be um, con contributing. So we then working together with um, the three Worcester staff that I mentioned before, um, we waited to an appropriate um, open, um, open date was, was possible. And Jeff, who's a professor of, um, of um, sports history at, at Worcester, um, um, there was a national conference um, going on at that particular, across the country. Um, on this particular day at the end of September, so he made that an appropriate link to to make a launch, and so we did, and, and, and you were there. Um, so, in the stuff now is in the process of, of, of finally being moved from um, the library services in the uh, older campus of, of Worcester to the state-of-the-art hive. Library, which is the only Europe, library in Europe, which is a university and public library, and um, I'm hoping to go across in, in January after the cup final to help progress and, and assist um, Roger, who's the archivist, um, make his work easier, um, so we can start to put this this stuff in in appropriate order, and then. With the grants, etc., which hopefully um, can be can be achieved. Um, which again is not not in my hands. 
in other more capable hands, um, we can look at ways of digitising some of the stuff um, or whatever is, is appropriate. Um, so I hope again that answers most of your question. Yeah. So I mean, so essentially, with that, um, with that archive, now that it's in the public library, is it a case of you know anyone can rock up and just say that they want to see it and do some research, and then they can get access and and uh, and have a look at it all? Um, yes and no. Um, in the sense, we do on a, on the, the pamphlet and on the launch. Um, Roger did did invite people to come and ask. Um, but respectfully at the moment, we'd ask people to only come with, um, through say, more high profile important things because our priority at the moment is laying it out, you with me, getting it appropriate so that people can come and visit it properly. At the moment they can't. And so it's left to Roger or somebody else to um, fish the stuff out and um, it's nearly all out of the boxes. It's a long process, and with, with respect to the library services, they've got five other projects on the go, not just not just ours. Um, so again, working as part of a, of a team, um, I'm not looking at the logistics in because I have alone in uh, January that I'll go in and, and see this unpacking process and, and, and assist with it. It, it, it takes time, but yeah, what what you're saying is hopefully um, going to be on its way sooner rather than later. And do you know whether um, since the uh, archive has kind of been open, do you know whether at all it's uh, led to more university students or researchers producing um, papers around around British basketball? Because obviously at, at the at the launch there was um, was it one or two master students that have that had done research based around specifically done a, uh, based around British basketball. Um, so I was wondering whether, you know, whether there's been a sort of increase or uptake in, in people that are interested in researching it. Well, again, what you say is very appropriate and, and precise. And again, I can't control that, but um, I, I would like to see some of that. I would like some of the areas to be given over as research projects in some shape or form, because um, they will then be um, done to a pretty decent standard, to say, to say the least. And we can then start ticking off um, the areas that are correctly researched. You know. Um, so yes, I, I'm hoping that um, some of what you're saying is going to come to fruit, and that uh, uh, the staff at Worcester um, will will. Uh, Include um, quite a lot with what you, what you're just saying, because it's um, a, a, quite a reasonable way forward. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like, uh, obviously, I get a lot of a lot of people contacting me, and, and uh, one of the things that I I feel in the last in the last couple of years has been so many students, undergrad students, um, that have yeah. been choosing to do their dissertations around British basketball, not so much on the history of the game, but uh, more, you know, the marketing side of it or increasing participation. Um, and I, and a lot of the time they'll contact me and ask if, well, first of all, if I can do any introductions to relevant people and whether or not they can interview me. And I, I always say yes on the condition that they send me the, the paper afterwards so that I can actually have a look at what their findings are. And so I've got this little collection now of dissertations, um, which... I 100% at some point want to speak to all of the students about and then make them publicly available because I feel like there's so much research happening around the game that will help um, grow the game and help create a culture around the game. But the only way that's ever going to happen is if it's publicly available for everyone else, you know, so then people can build upon it because each time a student's starting this work, they're starting from scratch and almost they're going to then have to do all the same work that another student's done um, to research stuff because there is nothing online. That's why I feel like, uh, you know, your cause, the things that you're talking about are just so important uh, in helping, you know, move the game forward and, and grow it. Would you say that's fair? Yeah, absolutely, precisely. And um, Jeff Cole, I'm not going to pronounce his name probably. I must apologise <laughs> life to Jeff. Um, at Worcester, he's the senior lecturer in sociology and sports studies. Um, and 
Worcester ha hosted um, the National His uh, Sports Historical um, Conference this, this year, and there was some aspects of basketball there. And again, um, he's he's very aware of these. Um, Jeff, like other people, you know, in his way, he thinks outside the box of of these particular areas. And um, you know, we really do well. I've got one page in my files of all the sponsors for all the competitions from from year dot. For, for, for example, um, that may sound may not sound dark because it's because of are any of those sports going to come back? A lot of them use um, basketball as a stepping stone going on to football. They cut their teeth in sponsorship by us. Um, you'll see this sort of stuff with Real Madrid and Barcelona. They'll trial things out with basketball and then it goes up in soccer. Where did this um, techno box come for, for soccer? I I asked myself, along with several other things. So no, you're, you're precise, you're absolutely right, um, and, and Jeff is, um, is the man, is the person in, in, in our team, you know, more so aware of, uh, of what you're talking about. And we have the information, I so say we have the information, we just have to, just a little bit more time to put it in place, and, and, and then people well, be a wonderful advert for the for the centre and the and with the university that people can come and do research from there in an appropriate way, as as as, as they allow these things to happen. Um, that again isn't my domain. I'm 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 the person who's donated a life's a life's work and collection, um, and now I I have to hand over and respect the professional knowledge and abilities of of, of other people. And as, as a team, this is how we're going to, how we're going to hopefully succeed um, successfully down the line. So, when you look at your personal collection uh, in terms of your archive, what are the things that you think are that you're most proud of um, of having and having collected? Well, just again. I, I'm the greatest man in the world for going at tangents. I have a World Cup 66 program here, which obviously I may have to give to Worcester as a token, token gesture. It's just a big uh, soccer man. Um, God, that is that is an interesting question. It was it was great to get hold of some of the 1948 uh, Olympic stuff to be able to see to see some of that and work on that. Um, I was very proud, probably my biggest work project was doing the history of the Eurobasket and having done, been to 22 Eurobaskets, um, all bar one, totally funded by myself, um, to make the history of the men's and women's Eurobasket back to pre-war from the 90s was an amazing experience, learning curve, communication project with people in other countries, going through loads of websites, um, really kept the brain buzzing. But again, it couldn't be done alone. You know, I owe, I owe debts to, um, to to other European friends there. Um, cause, because without them, um, the project was, was too wide. Uh, but it was a wonderful, a wonderful experience. Um, Doing the last Olympics was nice, um, but when you're an old soldier, um, it was just sad to me because we worked on a very with with a system that I didn't didn't like at all. And um, in in Turkey, the Eurobasket, I was speaking to the um, one of the staff that we were working with, and uh, I reiterate, reiterated those those points. So. so for the average uh, British basketball fan, what do you think are the, uh, historically, the biggest things that most people aren't aware of that they should be aware of? Probably uh, our historical stuff. Sorry, our, our international heritage. Um, this is why we need 
linking rings with the players, we need to do something on, on the legends with the criteria that Roger and I, something similar years ago, with obviously going through some form of committee because there may be some humanistic elements that also come, in, come into play. Um, but, um, I mean, I worked with Crystal Palace and after I'd gone, I mean, they played 15 years in Europe. 15 years in Europe before before they folded. Um, and I despair because, again, Roger and I were working on the U11 EuroLeague game for the British club, and apart from a couple of helpers from, uh, from the south of England, um, we're the only ones who worked on the ULIP business. We've had nobody in Europe for 10 years. It, it, it's an absolute tragedy. Yet again, there's another um, section of, of the research is British clubs in Europe, starting with Belfast Celtic in 1962, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it's, uh, it's mad. There's so much stuff. I, I feel like this. I, I mean, I've got no idea. There's so much stuff from before my time um, that I've got no idea about that I'm obviously trying to learn and, and uh, get to grips with. But it's like you said, it's so hard. It's so hard for anyone to get clued up on this stuff because the information just isn't out there for people to get hold of. Um, and it is, yeah, it's crazy. I, I do hope that, uh, you know, you succeed in your mission at some point and, and things are, are made a lot easier for people to be able to follow and um, and get a hold of. Uh, so if you, you know, come in, you've been, you know, you've been around the sport for, for decades. How would you describe um, the state of British basketball, both domestically and, and internationally, uh, today in 2017? Um, compared to how it's been in years past, like, would you say we're in a good place or a bad place? Like, uh, give us some context. Um, the potential is enormous, but we have to we have to get people into our sport. We've had a group of people. I mean, at the moment, FIBA TV is headed by Paul Simpson, first England guy to get a hundred caps, uh, ex Crystal Palace player etc etc um, and all of these people who could think outside the box the Peter Sprogges the David Glass who created the best club tournament in the world um, for 18 years by Crystal Palace and I really mean that the best club tournament in the world that's a WICB and, yeah yeah we had that in our country and slowly but surely most of the best things that we created half of them we destroyed ourselves there are a whole variety of negative aspects, or possibly negative people. But we need to keep the people. We've, we've lost so many of the people who think outside the box. You know, Peter Sprogg is left, and he's been highly successful because people like him had those those skills. We needed those people to stay here or to stay in that sport longer, and especially the people with marketing and financial experience. We haven't done that, so we haven't, you know, 1982, Crystal Palace beats Real Madrid. Okay? Um, when Kingston, with, with Kevin, um, got to that final eight, imagine it now, a British club in the final eight of European clubs. Where is our club? Or what, what number is our top club now in Europe? compared to Kingston making the final eight. Crystal Palace made the final eight of the uh, second cup in 1975-76, uh, by the way. Um, but that Kingston triumph was, it was monumental. Nothing seemed to compare. We just had to keep our good people. We have to have some career pathways. We can't keep changing the people. And we, we need our, our elite group of people who um, understand basketball and have those, those out-of-the-box skills. That's as simplistic as my intellectual capacities can can offer you. So would you say, if you, you know, uh, when you look at those Kingston teams and kind of, and then where we're at now, do you think that the, the sole reason that the kind of sport hasn't, um, well, the sport's fallen behind uh, is because of the people moving on and, and not having the right people involved? Well, losing people and losing, you know, when 
the BBL lost their, their TV contract. Um, they've never really recovered. And again, the sport owes a massive debt to Andy Webb going to a one-man person band and, and keeping it and, re, and helping to rebuild it with many good people around him. And those clubs are doing lots of good community things, but they're not playing at an elite level. You know, um, when I worked with Crystal Palace, every year we were playing in Europe. It was part. It was part of the package. It was. It was. You know, it was part of part of the culture. Um, and we had four or five clubs playing in Europe. Lots of years. Ten years we have nobody in Europe. How can our players, you know, how how can you develop? Um, I mean, in two weeks you've got this um, sad situation with the players and the class um, for these World Championship qualifiers. We don't have a player playing in the EuroLeague level. So in theory, we can recruit all of our players. Minus, sadly, um, Luau and, um, and, and Joel. Um, Post-Olympics, um, the women have had a core that stayed with it, whereas the men, we haven't had that that more elite core of, of, of players with due respect to everybody else, because uh, I really respect those, um, the guys who turn up every year. That's why I mentioned about, about Nate um, and about Andrew. It's great that Andrew Sullivan is continuing with, with the programme. Yeah. Um, so we're, com- we're coming up on an hour here so uh, I think there's co- two questions I want to finish on uh, one, um, you're talking about legends of the game uh, who are some of your underappreciated legends uh, in terms of historical historical figures in British basketball that you feel are underappreciated that um, you'd want to name check in this interview so that people can go and do some research and look, look them up um I can't do that question justice um, because until we put all this stuff and legends into context, um, that's only when I can be precise uh, with my background to, to speak confidently about that. But you know, through my lifetime, um, when you work with a club that has starts with Jimmy Diamond um, as a player, he's forgotten by many people and um, is an absolutely. I mean, he's a a hero to some quite prominent people around British basketball, um, even even to this day. Um, and also the Alton Bird, when you see a guy come in to the UK and he's five for eight, small, and you're thinking, who is this? Um, and then once once he started to play, um, well, we had, you know, virtually 15 years of great entertainment across the UK with Alton. Um, but these guys in the background, I say the, the David Glass, the Peter Sprogges, um, and now Paul Stinson working in Europe, and we have other people, you know, we have Alan Richardson working still his last few months with, with Fever, Richard Stokes in the EuroLeague, um, Ed Scott in the EuroLeague. We have all these really talented people if we could put a net over them and also like um, Sinead um, we could put a net on them and drag them back in, into the UK um, and they had money at their disposal um, I think things could be well beyond belief yeah uh, I hear not, that. Not not to say Joanna Sutherland, you know, who, who fronted basketball for the Olympics. Um, we have so many able people there. We've just got to keep keep them. In. But I can't I, I can't do it justice. I, I need I need to think a little bit more on, on that one. Fair enough. And then final question: um, If you had one message that you would want to give to uh, British basketball fans up and down the country, you know, whether it's about the importance of the history of the game or documenting it or whether it's something completely different, um, what is it that you would say? Um, 
speaking as an ex-school teacher, etc., etc., I really like all the university input, all the things that are keeping the young people um, providing structures so they can play and develop here. Um, and and uh, I hope that that's going to continue and we can move that on to another level with a, a, a more profitable, well, a league where more, more of our elite players can play here at a, at a high level to rebuild that um, to, what, to where it was. Um, well, that, that's my spontaneous answer, but it may not be the correct one. There is no such thing as a correct one. It's your answer, so uh, no right or wrong. That's a, that's a perfect place to leave it. Uh, maybe we'll have to get you on there for a part two to go in, in more depth uh, at some point in the future. But thank you so much for taking the time. It's much appreciated, and I'm, I'm sure uh, people will have a lot to take away from this conversation. Sincere thanks for your, for your time and effort with this. Thanks. You are listening to the Hoops Fix podcast, the official voice of the UK's largest basketball website. Visit hoopsfix.com for exclusive news, videos and more.